Are you someone with a dream, passion, and desire to become an entrepreneur? Hi, I'm Corey Mosley, and I'm on a mission to provide education and empowerment to aspiring entrepreneurs. If that's you, you're invited to join me every week as I talk with everyday entrepreneurs committed to beating the odds and building their businesses. Welcome to the Fearless Entrepreneurship Podcast. Hello, 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 and welcome to another edition of the Fearless Entrepreneurship Podcast, the place for entrepreneurs, future and current, to hear from other entrepreneurs that are out there making it every day. As always, I'm your host, Corey Mosley. We've got another great show, in case you were wondering. I've got another fantastic guest, an eccentric guest, a trailblazer in the motorsports business. I've got none other than Chelsea Lamers. I hope I said her name right. I was working on it uh, before the show. Oh, Lammers. I'm sorry. Chelsea, <laughs> Chelsea Lammers. She is the owner of Moto Richmond. She comes from a significant background in entrepreneurship. Her grandparents and parents all own businesses. So it was really in her, her blood. But she planned on doing something else other than owning this motorcycle shop after she graduated high school, top of her class. She wants you to know that. She just didn't know what. So after participating in different businesses and going to University of Virginia, nothing felt complicated or motivating to her. So she dropped everything and bought, you guessed it, a mail order business for vintage Vespa parts on consignment with count it $800 in the bank. So for all you entrepreneurs who send me emails about how you have no money to start your business, um, she got into a very niche space with just $800 in the bank, which for many of us might consider that to be a recipe for disaster. But she didn't know any better. And now today has grown a 15,000 square foot motorcycle dealership carrying Triumph, KTM, Vespa, and several unique European brands through some combination of cleverness and force of will. Chelsea, thanks for joining the show today. Hey, Corey. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to have you on. I've used your facility, referred some people. I've been threatening to buy a new bike from your store for the past year or so. But, you know, I try to, I buy my helmets and buy my other stuff there. So in between figuring out what motorcycle I'm going to get, we have the opportunity to, to spend some time together, get to know each other. So I wanted to have you on because I really love the story. I really love how you have the business going and, you know, the commitment that you've made to the business. So Tell our, our listeners a little bit, I, I touched on in the opening, this story about getting in the mail order business. I know it was back in like 02, so that doesn't sound as crazy as mail order might sound today, but tell us a little bit about how you got in the mail order business with Vespa and how that kind of led to you being, you know, one of the top Vespa dealers. I know you recently hosted the big Vespite, <laughs> Vespian uh, event there. So just tell us a little bit about your story. So I, basically a friend of mine that worked on vintage scooters as his, you know, just sort of out of his garage, had another friend that was, uh, had originally started as a mail order business and had moved into service and had recently become a Vespa dealer. This was like 2000, you know, 2001, give or take. Okay. And basically this gentleman decided that he wanted to focus on sales and service and sort of give up the mail order portion. Because as we all know, mail order eats up a huge amount of your capital just to have the inventory on hand to satisfy customer needs. And in 2002, the logistics chain for getting the stuff was a huge pain in the butt. So it was really a very labor-intensive business for not a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Now, he didn't bother telling me that part until after I decided to go for it, obviously. Uh, But, you know, the trick is that he just wanted out of it so that he could focus on other stuff. And knowing that I would pay him for the 
widgets that I, I mean, and they were no more than widgets. I didn't have the first idea what any of that stuff was. <laughs> he basically let me come up and do a self inventory and just take it away in a moving truck. <laughs> wow. And so where did the $800 come into play? Oh, I mean, not at all. Cause I didn't have to, I mean, I had to pay for the truck and I had to pay for my first month's rent on the space, uh, which was all of, I think $400 a month. And I figured I had enough for two months rent. So I was going to be fine. <laughs> So, so let me ask you, was, was Vespa a hot commodity back then? I mean, how did that go? I mean, what were some of your early challenges with making that business run? Well, the trick is that now whenever you buy something on mail order, it's very different. You know, Zappos, Amazon, everything is sort of normalized the online shopping process. Mm. In 2002, there weren't a lot of websites you could go to to shop online in the first place. And especially in the field of offering parts specifically for vintage vehicles, it was basically a thing where people would fax in their lists. If they even had email, it was kind of a miracle. So right. they would call the old phone number. He would tell them to call the new phone number. They'd call me <laughs> and I'd figure out what it was they wanted. Now the additional problem, other than not knowing how to run a business, you know, at all, is that <laughs> I didn't know how to fix a scooter. And people called wanting, you know, technical advice. What should they buy to mm. fix that? 1964 Allstate. And so, you know, I spent every night working until four in the morning learning about you know, how to manage accounts and how to do the bookkeeping and how to, you know, pay for stuff and, but also how to make the lights work and how to, <laughs> right, like, for sure. You know, replace the oil seals and all this stuff. So it was very labor intensive learning process that took uh, a lot of time. I mean, I was working, you know, 18 hours a day because it was the only way I could get anything done. So I think this is a very interesting point you make that I don't want to gloss over it, right? Forget the technical details of what you're doing, but you said, you're saying a couple of interesting things that I think counteract what a lot of people believe, especially fast forward to today, right? So it wasn't, I left my 100-hour-a-week job to become a 20-hour-a-week entrepreneur. I, you know, I wasn't balancing running my mail order business between hanging out at the beach or, you know, just hanging out wherever I was going and living this Instagram lifestyle that we have now where everybody's got it going on all the time, right? You were up before in the morning. See, people think they're going to jump into entrepreneurship and then that's going to take away their hours, right? So you're up till four in the morning. You're learning how to do all this stuff. You're learning how to, to run this deal. And I think that's something not to be glossed over is that work ethic and that work that has to go into really making something work already. So how do you end up becoming a Vespa dealer then? Uh, that took, it was, wasn't until 2010 that we actually became a Vespa dealer. Okay. Uh, what happened after that initial learning phase of figuring things out is that I managed to get an e-commerce website up before anybody else in the United States in that industry. So oh, wow. I was a little frog in a crappy, smelly basement space in an old meatpacking plant, and nobody knew that because it looked very professional and it looked, you know, ahead of the time in front of people that mm. had been doing it for a decade and had a huge warehouse full of parts. So it made us seem like a really big deal, even though, like I said, it was not even kidding me in a basement by myself. <laughs> wow, that so, listen, that's beautiful. That's great. Yeah. And then we had a couple of, uh, I did a couple of super successful marketing campaigns that really got the word out nationally. And I was very active on a bunch of, you know, sort of a close knit situation because it is super niche. So right. participating in message boards so that people knew who I was. And in the long run, these dudes that were working on their 1964 Vespa had a much better time calling a woman to ask for advice on how to fix it uh, than some faceless person. It was all based on the fact that they got to talk to me instead of somebody else. You worked so, the relationship. 
Yeah, after that, we moved uh, into this location that we are now, which was thankfully above ground. And <laughs> that's whenever we started actually offering sales and service. The first okay. brand was actually genuine. It's a, a smaller company. They are operated out of Chicago. They sell okay. that were made in Taiwan. And at that time, they were made in India. And uh, yeah, so that was the first, the first new kind of vehicle we carried was a single, there was a single model, just one. <laughs> so tell me about the process. Of, and that's, you think about the auto side, I mean, Han, you know, Toyota had, you know, really one or two cars when they started, same thing with Honda. And it's right. usually always that entry level thing, right? So you say, okay, I'm going to be a dealer. So I've got this Chicago deal going on one model. I've got my mail order business. I want to be a Vespa dealer now. You just call them up and say, hey, send me a franchise, send me, a, you know, some Vespas? No, unfortunately, there was a Vespa dealership in town at that time. So okay. we didn't have the opportunity to take them on. Uh, mm-hmm. I also didn't have a balance sheet that would have allowed them to agree to a franchise mm-hmm. in the first place. So, right. you know, we, 2008 came around and that was the year that gas in this area went to $4 a gallon and we were selling scooters faster than we could get them off the truck. It was insane. So wow. it was crazy busy. But then- But still just selling that one brand. We'll sell one brand, okay. yeah. Gotcha, yep. And on top of that, we managed that year to have a office manager that was sort of doing some unsavory things with the finances. That would so, be stealing? Yeah, that would be one way to put okay. it. So we would have ended up having the best year ever, and instead, we ended up having the tablecloth pulled off of the dinner table. So, Wow. 2009 you know, was a bad year for power sports in general because of the economy. Uh, yeah. But on top of that, to have our personal – struggle of trying to deal with this theft issue was really hard. So at that point, how many people do you have working for you? Uh, depending on the seasonality between three and six. Okay. So small group, yeah. right. And due to you not, listen, I'm not, a, I run businesses. I'm not a CPA, right. So you have to pick people that you trust um, to that certain extent. So even within that small community, you know, again, this is a great message for people. You have to make sure you have the right people in place you know, trust, but verify, right? That's usually, that, that's kind of the message there. So you find out you've got these discrepancies, oh, nine's tougher, go ahead. Yeah, I ended up putting too much trust in uh, to people. So, you know, now we have a lot of processes in place. <laughs> right, right, for sure. It doesn't happen again. Um, but, you know, frankly, I'm not even, don't even remember how we ended up getting Vespa other than the Vespa dealership that existed in 2009 gave up the franchise because they weren't able to support it because the industry was kind of collapsing on itself. So it was either they find another dealer in town or they have to take all those bikes that are in their inventory, you know, shut them down, find other places to put them. So we sure. uh, sort of an easier uh, ingress than a lot of folks do for getting a Vespa franchise. All right. So we got the parts business going. We've got this company out of Chicago. Now we've got Vespa. Now talk to me about how you, because you're now, now we start getting into motorcycles. Now I'm going to compress your timeline a little bit, but so what, what comes up next? What's the first motorcycle franchise? Well, there's one thing we did miss, which is that in 2008, before the business got crazy, when gas was $4 a gallon, yep. we actually gave up the mail order business. You did. Okay. Yeah. So you were like, margins aren't there. This isn't worth it anymore. Great lessons learned. So, but you didn't le- you didn't abandon your vertical. Right. There was right. basically, um, you know, I had to use my capital to focus on either the people that rode scooters that lived in Richmond and the Richmond area or focus on people that rode scooters that lived around the world. And the connection with people I could make focusing on Richmond made so much more sense to me. And it was frankly just more fun to do, more exciting, more, you know, vibrant, all that stuff. There's a million reasons to do 
take care of in-person brick and mortar stuff versus doing mail order stuff. Well, and I got to tell you, you bring up an interesting thing that people are. So it's so funny. You're telling your story, but within your story is all of this wisdom of lessons, <laughs> right? The work ethic. I mean, this is what's really cool. I have a lot of people on the show who come on the show and deliver their content. Um, which is great, but your story, the messages are wrapped up in it. So, you know, we've got work ethic in there. Now you're talking about another topic that's very interesting. And even something that I'm challenged with um, is this idea, everybody wants to be global. Uh, the marketplace gives everybody this, this, this national feeling, right? Because of e-commerce, because of video, because of social media, you can be everywhere. However, Sometimes your market and your, your acceleration and your growth really actually comes from compression, not expansion. So in your case, you said, let's, let me focus on my market instead of trying to serve everybody and be too thin, right? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but tell me no, if I'm getting it. That's a very good way to put it, yeah. <laughs> so instead of being too thin, right, I'm going to focus on my market and then I'm able to grow a stronger revenue and a stronger base because of the things that I have an advantage in, like my relationship like the building relationships and, you know, our location and where we are. Yeah. I mean, offering whatever product or service that you do, doing it with your sort of, you know, basic concept, uh, stressing sort of a concierge service, uh, that matters a lot more to people that come in or face to face to you. You know, all that stuff that I learned about how to fix people's uh, stator plates over the phone back in 2002 right. uh, became less useful whenever you've got more people that are doing the same thing, because despite the fact that you can help them, uh, someone else can help them just as much. And it, it becomes more difficult to differentiate yourself from your competition. Right. Yeah. right. So now it's time to play with the big boys, right? And I say big boys because the motorcycle business is heavily male dominated. We were talking, you know, we were talking pre-broadcast. Um, the percentages are very, very low of female motorcycle dealership. I understand they have diversity programs and different things to try to boost it. But if you look across the, the landscape, right, the percentages are very small. So now you've taken on, you've got Triumph, you've got Moto Guzzi, am I saying it right? Yes. <laughs> which I hadn't even heard of until I came to your location. Um, and then recently you added KTM, which is an Austrian brand, a brand that's super tough to get. There's not a lot of dealers out there, right? Talk to our audience, especially our, our female listeners, right? How do you break it? I mean, what were you just accepted? Did you find that there was any, anything or it was just, Hey, I, I've got a great location. I want to hang a shingle. And they're like, okay, how, how have you felt working in that good old boys network? So to speak. I mean, the brands themselves don't care whether you're a man, woman or a dolphin, you know what I mean? Like it doesn't okay. matter to them as long as you give them the specs that they want, a business plan that makes sense and the space is good and you've got the right attitude. So that's not necessarily important to the actual brands you're trying to get, no matter what you're trying to do, you know. The craziest thing for me in terms of that regard is that, you know, at, I guess Vespa did a meet, Vespa doesn't do meetings very often. They did one in 2009, 10, no, 11, I don't know, a few years okay. ago. They did and a meeting, gotcha. Yeah, meeting and I'm being introduced to the national sales director by my regional manager. And okay. my husband was there with me. So we're both in the room because I had just broken my wrist. And so I was like in a cast and on painkillers. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, I, I crashed. I, I crashed a snowboard. It wasn't a motorcycle. So we're sitting in this meeting and the regional manager introduces me to the national rep as being the owner of Chelsea. And yep. the guy keeps looking at my husband, trying to figure out how Chelsea could possibly be a man's name. Like he will not give me any respect. <laughs> oh, wow. This is, cl this is a classic yeah. sexist move, right? Okay. Yeah, so he just really expected it to be the other person in the party. So, you know, that doesn't happen to me very often, though, because generally speaking, 
you know, I don't really think about my own identity in terms of being gendered. It's just about getting things done. So if it bothered me more, if it was something that I made more into an issue, that would allow other people to make it an issue. And I just don't want anybody to make it an issue because it's not important. Like it doesn't matter. I get along great with men, women, everybody. It's, it's awesome. And while I think that it would matter if, like, if you don't make a big deal out of it, it's hard for somebody else to make a big deal out of it. Okay, so what I'm going to say, I'm not going na- to name names because we've, <laughs> we've had a story, so we won't name names about it, but you do deal with it because if I recollect correctly, right, if I'm using my memory here, there's a particular rep. I remember us talking about this. There's a particular, there's a kind of a rep, somebody that interacts with your business who's very difficult to deal with, who I remember you telling me a story. Some, you know who I'm talking I think you know who I'm talking about. <laughs> But there's definitely a undertone in that interaction, right? So I think you guys just don't even de- – you don't buy from him or there's something there, right? Oh, but- yeah, I know. Yeah, that guy. Yeah, that guy. Uh- <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, you know, if people are going to make a big deal out of me being a woman or the fact that it's a woman-owned business, then we don't need to deal with them. You know, the our, our most important vendors, uh, either they're fine or I will make them be fine or they can walk, you know? Gotcha. I don't need to deal with, with companies that are – going to disrespect me and my business because I haven't worked, you know, 17 years to take crap from those people. <laughs> right. No, no. Understood. Yeah. So if you had to go back, I'll, I'll give you that, you know, perfunctory question, right? If you had to go back today to your younger self and <laughs> give yourself advice about how you've grown the business or decisions you've made over the career of starting this business, what would you tell yourself? Well, you know, I think the entire growth of this company is very based on the fact that uh, I am not particularly risk averse. So I have no problem taking what is basically a leap of faith and have done so on more occasions than I can count. Uh, Mm -hmm. So what I would tell my younger self is to write a better business plan at the beginning so you have some idea of what's about to happen. (laughs) Excellent. When you take the risk, you know, there's the reward, which is what you're focusing on. But if it goes wrong, you have to be able to change course and fix it. And you know, a really good solid business plan can help you uh, figure out what those things are going to be because obviously what you want to put in there to begin with is the best case scenario always all the time. But if you aren't getting there, you have to be able to figure that out and know that it's going kind of sideways before you've screwed it up and lost everything you work for. I, you know, I talk about this often when I go around town and I drive by a facility and I, I see a for rent sign and you ever look up and you can see where the old sign's been taken off. Like, that's somebody's dream, right? Right, gone, right? That's somebody's. That's somebody's four hundred one k potentially gone. That's somebody's second mortgage in their house. Um, it's a tragic thing, and if you back into a lot of it, or if you ever have an opportunity to talk to those people, as I have run into them on occasion or heard people's stories, it all goes back to a lack of knowledge on topics that they should have, you know, known better on. Right. <laughs> So, so one of the things, you know, one of the things I've known you for probably about two years, I think one of those things I've started to see slowly more things happening, right? So, uh, you know, renting more space or kind of parts of the building that weren't used before now have inventory in them. What are your, how are you approaching expansion today? And what are some of the things that you would advise people who are faced potentially with taking that leap of faith or that risk to grow their business? I mean, once you're already in it, the one of the most important tools for me, at least, is to make sure that I'm looking at my P&L based on the different products I'm offering very specifically. Because looking at it globally is one thing, but you might have 
you know, one part of your business that's sucking away a ton of capital, very expensive to keep in that place. And you have to make sure that it's, uh, if you can't immediately get rid of it, that it's in the spot that isn't the most expensive real estate on the floor in the first place. You know, when you go into the gap, the new stuff's in the front because that's where they make the most money and the closeout right. stuff all the way in the back. And it's basically right. just having that mentality and using the space uh, so that you can showcase the things that are most likely to be profitable for you and less likely to be a loss for you. Um, and I think that especially with this new uh, addition, you know, we just need to make sure that we're using the space wisely for the stuff that's in it. And if something isn't working, similar to how we dumped the mail order business in 2009, eight, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's just about keeping an eye on that stuff and knowing that just because you started, it doesn't mean you can't stop if it's not working. <laughs> right. Can't not, not be afraid to change. Correct. Yeah, don't be afraid to cut off your arm to save the rest of your body from getting <laughs> That's right. As opposed to cutting off your nose to spite your face, right? Exactly. That would be the opposite of it. Yep. So, so before we move to your craziest entrepreneurship moment, uh, the last question I want to ask you is about the idea, you kind of have buckets of entrepreneurs, right? You ultimately run your own deal, but you work within a franchise system to a certain extent, right? Yeah. You've got rules and regulations for each of your brands. So for, for people who are thinking about getting involved in franchise-driven models, how does that provide security for your growth as a business? And then what challenges do you see on the opposite side of that? I mean, the franchise thing is interesting because you obviously have a certain amount of homogeneity of product, which is good because you know that you're going to get the same quality object that everybody else that has that thing is going to get. So there's not going to be a preferential situation in terms of who gets someone getting better motorcycles than somebody Mm. else. Um, But on the flip side, you have to know the dealer agreements, the franchise agreements, like the back of your hand, you should have that stuff memorized. If your rep ever surprises you with something or their interactive point ever knows something that you don't know, you got to go back and read that stuff and know it backwards and forwards. I can't tell you how many things I've won because I know the agreement better than Mm -hmm. the person that's administering it. So a lot of it's just about knowing your rights and making sure that there's no opportunity to be, I don't know, sort of taken advantage of by the documentation. You know, it's, uh, but realistically, the franchise doesn't protect us from risk really at all. If we, you know, say, hey, we're having a really bad year, this isn't working. They just want us to fulfill the terms and conditions. They don't really. Right. They want, I mean, they need us as a partner because legally speaking, most automotive motorcycle franchises cannot sell vehicles directly to consumers. So they need dealers, which mm, means right. versus being, you know, a customer. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated. It's, uh I wouldn't necessarily say it gives me a lot in terms of extra security knowing that they're there because it's not like they're a blanket I can pull up and my feet get cold, you know? <laughs> gotcha. gotcha. Right, right, right. Hey, you know, we're 30,000 light in uh, P&L. Can you, can you help a brother out, right? It's not uh, help a sister out, right? Can't, can't exactly ask that. Okay, cool. So tell us, what's a crazy, I mean, you've been in business for a while. You've been grinding out there. What's a crazy entrepreneurship moment? It could be your craziest or just a crazy one that, that you want to share. I mean, we have so much crazy stuff happen on a weekly basis that it would blow your mind a little bit. But um, I don't know. The time that we had a, a blind couple insist on buying a scooter probably ranks up there. I'm sorry. Come again? What, what they, were, they were blind. A pair of blind people came in and insisted on buying a scooter. <laughs> and how was that going to work? Well, one of them, the man was completely blind and the woman was only partially blind. But neither of them could get their driver's license. And in Virginia, you can ride a 49cc scooter without a driver's license. So they determined this would be a great way for them to be a loophole. Yeah. For them to go a loophole, right? You can't get a license because you're blind, but you don't need a license to ride a scooter. That was pretty clever there. 
Yeah, until they ran it into the back of a parked car. <laughs> oh, my goodness. How long after? So you sold it to them. Yeah. I was, I mean, I, all you can do is say, I don't think this is a good idea. I don't advise that you go through with this. And there's nothing. I mean, people will make their own decisions. That's, you know. How long did they have this? Do you remember before they ran it into something? You know the parking lot behind the building? Yes. Yeah, so they made it about 20 yards. <laughs> the same moment they purchased it. They ran oh into the car in the parking lot of the next business over. <laughs> I cannot. <laughs> that, that, you're gonna, you, you definitely get a little award on the show today because I had I <laughs> that one coming for sure. Oh, my God. Wow. Okay. Well, we're going to move on to the entrepreneurship rapid fire section. This is the section of the show where I'm going to ask you some questions to let everybody know how you tick a little bit as an entrepreneur. Okay. So you're just going to give me the first thing that comes to your head, okay? Are you ready, Chelsea? I'm ready, Corey. Let's do All it. Right. PC or Mac? I know the answer. Mac. Me. Mac. For sure. What's your favorite credit card for small business? Uh, Chase Sapphire. Are you a physical planner or digital planner kind of person? Digital, for sure. What's your favorite software right now to manage your business? Oh, uh, I mean, uh, my dealer management software is not my favorite. So I don't really have an answer to that. <laughs> I think, you know, I figured you were going to say, just knowing, I figured you were going to say Slack. Uh, I mean, we, Slack's great. We, we like that one, yeah. <laughs> okay. Plug for Slack, future sponsor of the Fearless Entrepreneurship Podcast. Um, <laughs> Starb <laughs> Starbucks, Dunkin', or other? Other. Other. What are you into? Oh, we do Blanchers. It's a local coffee bean roaster. It's my uh, favorite. They deliver to the office, so we're able to, you know, I have it at my house. So I get the same stuff for the customers. It's about, you got to have good coffee. Crying out loud. Bl Blanchard's Blend is the only coffee I can drink completely black. Really? I grind it every morning. I grind I grind the beans every morning in the house and I have a little pour over because I'm fancy like that. Uh, my mocha master pour over. And it's the only it's the only bean. I can't drink their other stuff. I have some of their other I've tried their other ones, um, like base camp and stuff, but I can only drink that one completely black. That's the only I'm, coffee I can I'm a base camp kid all day long. Base camp. Are you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can't uh, yeah, that's the only one. All right, so Blanche, shout out to Blanchard's. Thank you card or thank you email? Oh, thank you card, 100%. When it comes to reading and learning, I assume you do, do you prefer hardcover, tablet, or audiobook? Uh, tablet. What would you say is your next big goal? Uh, a vacation. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And when is it? Is it scheduled or is it just uh, on your vision board right now? In January, I have to figure out what the deal is, but it's happening. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, congrats. I'll check in. I'll definitely check in on you that. Final question. One day with any mentor still alive, who would that person be? Hmm. I'm supposed to answer this fast. I'm taking too long. <laughs> well, you got a moment. I mean, no dead air is allowed on, on, <laughs> on, on audio here. So if you want me to do the Jeopardy music, I can stall for you. Well, the trick is that I'm in a dealer group with some extremely amazing people. So I get to spend, you know, three days of recorder with these guys. And they're all the guys that I would want to have as my mentors. So it's okay. So no, no dream mentor. If insert the blank walked into the shop today, walked into your store, who would be like, oh, wow, I, I need to, I'm going to make some time to talk to this person. Yeah, Corey, I already know everybody. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No shortage of ego today uh, from Chelsea. <laughs> Chelsea wants to mentor with nobody. Okay, all right, gotcha. Right. I mean, like Oprah rolled in. You, you got nothing for her. You got no 
no cover you, you're just going to go in the back and hang out no i mean i, I talked to oprah sure but i wouldn't uh i wouldn't you, you'd have to pick a name out of the hat you know what i mean <laughs> Okay, I this is a this is a podcast first. Uh, someone said nobody; they know everybody that they can know already. So, so that that's all right. All right, okay. Moving on. Final segment of our show is entrepreneurship trivia. This is an opportunity for you to earn twenty five dollars for your favorite charity. I'm going to ask you a trivia question. Don't worry; there's multiple choice to them. Okay. If you answer it correctly. I'll donate $25 to the charity of your choice. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's go. Okay. Wait, I want to I want to find one we haven't done, but I want to give you a hard one. Let's see if I <laughs> I want to make you work for it. I'm ready uh, to work. Oh, these are all true or false questions. Oh, you're getting you're getting off so easy here. Okay, true or false? According to a 2018 small business marketing trends report conducted by software firm Infusionsoft, 71% of small businesses plan to use social media content in order to acquire customers. Is that a true statement or a false statement? <laughs> I think it's true. <laughs> I mean, it could be higher. It could be higher, but most statistics are made up anyways. Well, that's not the point. This was an official study here. I gave you the official study. You gave me the so, official study. That's true. So, you, so you're going with your final answer is true. I don't know, 71% seems really low, but I guess there's a lot of businesses that don't really do much advertising. What's your answer? I don't, don't have all day. Yes, we do. <laughs> true, true or false? Uh, false. You're going to go with false? Yeah, 71 seems that, really low. All right, that's your final answer? Yeah. Okay, thank God I just saved $25 because the answer was true. You should have trust, no. trusted your gut. <laughs> make any sense 71% according to Infusionsoft and they're a big company so if they made it up good news is it worked in my favor today <laughs> Chelsea how do people they want to learn more I know I've got some motorcycle fans out there obviously people know that I ride anybody interested you can ship all over the country sure. people who want their KTMs and their Triumphs how do they contact the dealership how do they contact you give them some uh, info here I mean, our website, our Instagram, our Facebook, it's all under Motor Richmond, motorrichmond.com. Uh, our number is 804-230-1000. Moto, M-O-T-O. 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 That's right. Moto Richmond. Chelsea, I, I want to appreciate you taking the time and joining the show today. No, thanks for having me, Corey. I appreciate it. This has been another edition of the Fearless Entrepreneurship Podcast. If you are thinking about starting your business and you're concerned, fearful, and, and want some information that's going to help you, I invite you to visit fearlesswithcorey.com and take my free training, Five Simple Strategies to Get Your Business Started Now. As always, I want to thank you for tuning in, and I'm going to leave you with this. Keep the mind sharp, the vision clear, the resolve strong, and you will make it. I'm your host, Corey Mosley, and I will see you next week on the Fearless Entrepreneurship Podcast. Are you still there? I just want to say thank you again for listening to this podcast. Our podcast is distributed to several different sources like iTunes and Stitcher and SoundCloud, plus, of course, our own website. And it would mean so much to me if you liked the show to leave a review. It, of course, helps to build our popularity, but it also helps us come up in search engines so we can reach as many entrepreneurs as possible. So, can I count on you to leave a review? I know I can. Thanks again, and I look forward to sharing with you 
next week.